Let's go to God in prayer as, as we begin our time in the word. Dear Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see what you would have for us from your word. Lord, open up our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from it this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of us have had the good intentions of reading through the Bible in a year? But wait, wait, but crashed and burned when you hit Leviticus. <laughs> Come on. Not one. Okay, thank you. Thank you for some honest people. Several months ago, somebody in our congregation asked me, what's Leviticus all about anyway? And that spurred me on to study it and read it, listen to sermons on it for about three months now, maybe four months now. And I need to tell you right up front, I still don't know a thing about Leviticus. God is so big. I hope you get that this morning. He is not like us. And that's the point of the book. He is not like us. You need to know that this sermon is just barely scratching the surface of this massive book, this massive God. It's going to be a 30,000-foot look at this book. Please have mercy on me. Please bear with me. I am frail. As we sang in the song earlier, God is big. Some have called the book of Leviticus a graveyard of good intentions. I think it's a good word, but think about it this way. Paul said later on, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is God-breathed, and is profitable. So let's not think, oh, it's Old Testament. It doesn't apply to us. Folks, brothers and sisters, this morning, this book applies to everyone sitting here this morning, every single soul this morning. It's an interesting fact to know that the ancient Jews used to teach Leviticus to teach their children the things of God. They didn't start in Genesis. They started in Leviticus. Rabbi Asi is his name. He's an old rabbi. But he said this, Why do we begin children's biblical learning with Leviticus and not with Genesis? Because children are pure and the sacrifices are pure. Let the pure ones come and study pure things. This book is quoted 13 times in the New Testament, like directly and specifically. It's alluded to many other times. We simply cannot and dare not understand the book of Hebrews without reading and knowing Leviticus. They go hand in hand. The setting of the book. So the Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They don't move. There's no movement in the whole book. They're there for roughly a month. Think about the context. They just came out of the book of Exodus where we see God in chapter 34 says, I'm a jealous God. You better revere me as a jealous God. You better worship me. In fact, I'm so jealous of you worshiping other gods. He says, my name is jealous. That is how intent he was on making these frail children of Israel understand who he was and that he deserved worship. And then you see for many chapters in the book of Exodus, they were building a tabernacle. Talk about specs, Al. God laid out the plans for this building and you couldn't mess up. And then at the end of the book, you see the beauty of the Shekinah glory on display there. And it's, it's like God saying, hey, I approve of what has happened. Now it's time to worship me. And now we go into the book of Leviticus, and we're going to look at, really, this is an instruction manual on how God's people who came out of that setting in the book of Exodus are to approach this God who is awesome and holy and jealous. 
This is right before they go into Canaan, if you remember the context. The next book is the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy after that. This is a preparation for what is to come. Now, there's a couple of ways to tell you what the outline is. One is Leviticus 1 to 16 is sacrifice. If you want a one-word outline title, it's sacrifice. How to have personal access to God. How do you approach God? 17 to 27 has to do with sanctification, walking, walking in holiness. So it's sacrifice and holiness, which is really our testimony if you think of it. The sacrifice has been made. Now we're to live in holiness. There's four major headings of this book. Three come under the umbrella of sacrifice. One comes under the umbrella of holiness, if you can picture that in your mind. So you have sacrifice as the umbrella over here. And under that uh, comes sacrifice, priesthood, and cleanness. And under uh, holiness is just holiness and how to walk with God. So those are the four, four major headings. If, if you want sacrifice, priesthood, cleanness, and then holiness is the second half of the book or the end of the book. Some of the questions that will be addressed in this book, and there's many I could put down here, and I just put like three or four questions. Why was there a need for sacrifices? Why in the world are we doing this? Next is, what is God like? Another one is, how is he approached? And another one is, do we see Christ, the coming Messiah, the longed-for one of the Jewish people? Is he located in this book at all? So we, we will touch on those, as well as many more things. The overall theme is, is holiness. We see the picture of holiness everywhere in the book. God is holy, and that's the point. The words holy, blood, priest, and sacrificed are used more here in the book of Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. So it's important. Holy, blood, priest, and sacrifice. So let's start with the first heading, laws pertaining to sacrifice. Number one, sacrifice. And that's from 1-1 to 7-38. It's hard to outline this like verbally. It's easier to look on paper. But So you have the laws about sacrifice, and there's two sections under that, the people and the priests. So first we're going to look at the people, which is 1-1 to 6-7. If you need a recording later on, you can talk to the sound room people or... I'll steal my notes. I'll make a copy of my notes if you want this further broken down and in front of you to read. These are the instructions for sacrifice to the people. Think about it this way. We've learned that God is holy. He's, he's awesome. He's jealous. And now he says, with that knowledge, you need to worship me. I am worthy. Some people say that is prideful, but uh, you can't say that about God. He created everything. He can say and, and request whatever he wants. How is he to be approached? He ordained five offerings, five sacrifices that would accommodate the people in this way. And this is just a skim the surface, a 30,000-foot look at this. A few things you need to know about these five offerings. They're voluntary. Second, they were personal, and they were spontaneous. Now, keep in mind this. When you see the Jews or the, or the children of Israel in the festival worship and the whole congregation was there worshiping. Those were required sacrifices there at those festivals. These are voluntary, spontaneous, and personal sacrifices that if you wanted to do it, you could. 
And I might say, and it didn't say this in any commentary I read, but, you know, whenever you have a book like this or like First Peter where they were sojourners or whatever, you have a mixed multitude of people. Some are true believers. Some are just going along for the ride. So in my mind, probably what happened is the true believers who wanted to approach their God would fall under these four ways. They would use these four means of approaching that God. First, we have the burnt offering. The burnt offering, and I see a few of you taking notes, so I'll try to go slower. Burnt, and then you have the grain offering. The grain offering. Then you have the peace offering, or the fellowship offering, peace. So the burnt, the grain, the peace. And then you have the sin offering, and you have the trespass offering. Those, those five offerings. I just want to give you a quick overview what they all meant and entailed. First, the burnt offering, chapter 1. It goes right into this out of the gate. You open up your Bible, and you can see it right there in chapter 1. The burnt offering is to be done this way. It teaches us that God is pleased and will accept anyone who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. Verse 1-3. And you can look at the verses, okay, as I referred to them. We will look at a few uh, specific verses here along the way, but if you want to look down every now and then, that's in 1-3. The whole animal was consumed on the altar. It atoned for the worshiper's sin, satisfied the wrath of God against sin, and made fellowship possible between a holy God and a sinful person. So that's a burnt offering. Chapter 2 is a grain offering. Someone accepted by God, by his grace, through the burnt offering, could respond in gratitude through a grain or a cereal offering. It was called 2-2. In chapter 2, verse 2, talks about this. It was an offering of flour and oil in which a handful was burned and the, and the priests were to eat the rest. It was a gift to God from the best of the worshiper's produce in an act of thanksgiving for sins forgiven. So true believers would probably want to do this and say, you know, Lord, thank you for loving me and making a way to approach you. The third offering, and this is just a quick overview, is the peace offering, chapter 3. So unlike the other offerings, the peace offering uh, was given uh, in addition to the burnt offering. The peace offering closed with a meal in which the priest who represented God, the worshiper, and his... And her friends, they all ate together. The sacrifices had to be eaten in one or two days. And the big thing about the peace offering, and I'll just touch on this quickly, is it had to do with thanksgiving. You were thankful. Think about Hannah in, uh, what is it, First Samuel 2, where she was thankful to God because God had given her a long prayed for a son, Samuel. There is a great example, a picture of a peace offering and thanksgiving offering. The fourth offering is found in 4.1 to 5.13, the sin offering. It's better translated the purification offering. It deals with two issues, two, two key issues, the necessity of forgiveness from unintentional sins and cleansing from the ceremonial uncleanness. We'll look at that later on briefly. The uncleanness is a different issue. It's... I told some of the guys on Friday night that I've just been wrestling with that whole issue for weeks, and, and I still am now, but we will try to cover that briefly later, uh, the clean versus unclean. But this was a way to be clean in the process of uh, offering the sin offering. And it also cleansed the tabernacle from uh, human defilement. And the last offering was a trespass offering. This is a little bit different from the sin offering. And by the way, it's also called the guilt offering. 
It caused the individual to look beyond the sin to the damage it caused. It had to do with a reparation because they not only sought forgiveness, but first he or she also paid full restitution, adding to the price the additional percentage. They had sinned, and there's kind of a restitution, a reparation involved. And I'm not going to get into it because there's so many theologians, so many commentaries that talk about the characteristics of Christ seen in all these offerings. It's amazing. It really is. When you have a chance, look at chapters 1 to 5 here of Leviticus and just like type in your Google search and find a good website. There's a lot of bad ones. And look at the characteristics of Christ that is seen in all these offerings. God says, hey, this is how you approach me. There's five offerings, and they're done uh, in different ways at different times, things like that. But why are these needed? Well, because you and I have a huge problem. It's called sin. You want to ruin a social gathering? Bring up the word sin. People will scatter. The problem with sin is it messes up two things, our fellowship and relationship with God, obviously, and our relationship and fellowship with one another. We are sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. What God wants for us, for you, me, right, sitting here, is for us to agree with God about what he says about that sin. Sin is actually putrefying to God. You have to realize that. So often we take sin so lightly and say, well, he'll forgive. In fact, we were talking about this. I was talking with a Christian at work Friday about this. We think we can sin presumptuous you know, ways and just say, oh, well, God will forgive. You know, it's no big deal. We need a high and big view of God. Well, how do we know it's putrefying to him? It requires blood, a blood sacrifice. The sacrificial system was a bloody mess. You go to a slaughterhouse now, that was probably nothing. You go to a slaughterhouse, and there's a lot of blood, but here in the tabernacle, it was, there, was, there were rivers of blood you know, flowing from these offerings. Now, this um, word blood is used 88 times in this book. You think it means something? You think it's important? Okay, 88 times. And that's what's needed to deal with our sin problem. Sin is destructive. You know, Paul said the wages of sin, you, you, you want to get paid for sin? The end is death. The result, the payment is death. It ends in death. Countless numbers of animals were slaughtered to cover the sins of the people. And by the way, remember the word cover the sins of the people, not to fully take away. Just a few words on sacrifices uh, and the general uh, reason for them. They served as a means to aid the believer in experiencing the presence of God. And imagine, and I just jotted this out of my notes. I mean, imagine going to the tabernacle and you, you go there with an offering and you know that God just approved of that offering. What a blessing that would be. So many people in religion, you know, they don't have that assurance that God has accepted what they are, well, really how they're coming to him. Um, and then another thing about sacrifices it was a means by which you could just go and say, listen, I'm just so thankful to God. I want to show him. I want to tell him. And you go and you offer something at the at tabernacle. Um, uh, third, they were a temporary, like I said a minute ago, they were a temporary covering for sin, just a temporary covering. We'll talk about that later. And also they were a foreshadow, a glimpse of what was to come with the perfect and complete sacrifice of Christ. And uh, by the way, these sacrifices are no longer happening. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. They don't have the means of offering these sacrifices anymore. So what do Jewish people do? If they can't bring an offering, 
What do they bring to God? Any thoughts? They bring their deeds, their works. I heard somebody say that. Thank you. Their works or their deeds. That's all they have left in their mind. So they try to please God by doing good works. Okay. How? Okay, so we know that God requires sacrifice. How? How is this to happen? Who's going to do it? How does it work out? And I'm telling you the details. And I understand why some of you said, why Leviticus? Um, it's not, it doesn't grab you like Genesis or maybe Exodus would. I understand that. So, and God knows that. I'm sure he does. But we are to understand the holiness of God. And if you leave here with nothing else, I want you to have a greater, higher view of God than, than ever before. Because, man, I read, I was telling the youth group leaders Friday night, man, as I've, I've, I've read this book for months now and on and on, listening to sermons. I have a greater fear of God than I ever had before. He is awesome. We, we bring him down to our level. You know, uh, remember that verse in Psalm 50? He says, the problem with you is you thought that I was just like you. And God's not like that. Okay. So number two, the heading number two is the priesthood. Okay, you have the sacrifice. Now you have the priesthood. Who does this stuff? How does this work out? Um, there's only one way to approach God and deal with sin. And by the way, you, practice, you know, when you study the Bible, and you Bible teachers know this, you need to put yourself in the sandals of those right in the text. You have to live alongside them. You have to breathe their air. You have to feel what they're feeling. You, I mean, you have to smell the blood around the altar. You have to get into it. And I was thinking, man, I am so thankful that I'm not a priest in Leviticus. Because you needed to follow these instructions perfectly, as we'll see in chapter 10, or else. You need to follow the instructions just right, because God is that demanding that you need to do it just right. And that's the God we are here to worship this morning. He doesn't, he's not willy-nilly about these things. Who is qualified to intercede to do these offerings, to take them and offer them? Well, there's a joke out there that I liked, and I, you know... The qualifications are that you have Levi genes. Sorry. Um, in, in Leviticus 6.8, as well as back in Exodus 28.1, we clearly see that this task was assigned to just Aaron and his sons. And a lot, of, a lot of us think, oh, well, you know, he just had two sons, and Adab and Abihu. He actually had four. And, um, in fact, um, uh, chapter 8, 1 to 10, 20, okay, as we speed ahead, the beginnings of the priesthood, uh, the ordination of Aaron and his sons on chapter, chapter 8. And it just says here, basically to sum up, uh, these instructions were to carry out these sacrifices were given to Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar. So those are the four sons of Aaron. And I'll tell you what, I put my sandals on or I try to live in their sandals. Think about this. Why in the world would he pick Aaron? Have you thought about Aaron? Do you remember what he did at Sinai when Moses was a long time coming down? He said, they gave me all their gold and look what popped up, a golden calf. Look at that. What a coincidence. You know, and he tried to shift the blame to chance, luck whatever, when he was responsible for worshiping a false god. 
And God says, no, you and your four children are to take the sacrifices and intercede on behalf of the people. Isn't that crazy? Is that not mercy and grace? The good news is that he uses you and me. We are frail. Some examples of frail people in the Bible, I thought about this. Matthew, a, tax, a traitor, a tax collector that everybody despised. You know, God says, you, you know, come follow me. Paul, Paul was a murderer. I mean, hello, Moses was a murderer. Um, and we'll look, uh, we'll look at more, more situations like this in another uh, top, in another heading. But, you know, God is, he doesn't say, you sinned once, you're, you're gone. He's gracious. He wants to use us. Um, we are clay pots, right? Second Corinthians says, and those are the people that he wants to use so that he gets the praise and the glory. We can't say, oh, look what I did. That is what religion does. That's what the Pharisees did. So then we go on to the priesthood. We look at the ordination service. It's a little different from the ordination when you become a pastor. I never had to go through this, and I'm thankful. They, they, uh, they offered a sacrifice, chapter, um, chapter 8, and they put the blood on the ear of Aaron and his sons, on the right thumb, and on the right toe of your, big, of your right foot. That's gross, okay? I mean, we're sitting here this morning in a sterile environment, but that's gross. But it wasn't gross in that context. They were used to that. But the point is, is what's the symbolism there? And this is why they did this in the ordination, which they didn't heed later on, and we'll look at that in a minute. First of all, it's on the right ear because you need to listen to the words of God. You need to listen to the commands of God. Um, Second, it was put on the right thumb to carry out his commands. You must do these commands the way I say or else. And then third, uh, on the right toe, because you need to walk in faithfulness. Okay? So God is involved in every step of the process. In fact, right in that chapter he says, they did this just as the Lord commanded Moses. You need to be precise with God. He is very specific. All right. So the first sacrifice is in chapter 9. And so Aaron made the sin, the burnt, and the peace offerings. Think about this. The people are all gathered together, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people in 923. They shouted with great joy. Imagine if you knew the glory appeared in its Shekinah glory right here. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? You get excited over the Patriots winning the Super Bowl or the Bruins winning big last night. Are you kidding me? The Shekinah glory... God is there, he's with us, and he approves. Wow, you know. Um, uh, sometimes our worship service, and it's probably my fault, it's not as joyful as it could be or should be, because we tend to twist that a little bit. Um, so God was worshipped, and he was satisfied with the worship. But so often, like, we have problems with the mountaintop experience, right? We've all heard that term. We you know, go on a retreat, and we come back, and we're all pumped up for, what, a week or two or a day or two? Well, there's tragedy that happens, and we'll, and we'll look at it in a minute, chapter 10. But think about it. I was thinking about the big picture, and I didn't see this in any commentaries, but I thought about this. Um, think about Ananias and Sapphira in uh, Acts chapter 5, right? They, um, they were zapped on the spot. 
That's a glance translation of the Greek. But they lied about how much they were given. They said, here's all the proceeds of the land we sold. And God said, oh, no, you don't. And the church is brand new at this time. And it's like God is setting the tone for the church and say, oh, no, you don't. You don't lie. You don't exaggerate. I'm in charge. I know what's going on. Okay? And then um, we see in chapter 10. In fact, if you want to look there with me, chapter 10, 1 to 3, because this is one of the highlight, or really a low light of the book of Leviticus. But chapter 10, I just want to read these uh, three verses. Uh, check this out. Now, Nadab and Abihu, I'm reading from, I believe this is a New American Standard uh, version, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire, profane fires in other translations, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Good move on his part. Shut up. (laughs) I think it's in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon says, like, when you come to worship me, let your words be silent, because God is in heaven, and he hears everything you're saying. Just shut up. (laughs) The whole point of this book, as, as we've uh, touch on already is the holiness of God. The word profane, by the way, and it's in some translation, is literally uh, outside the temple. Starting the sacrificial system by offering, by disobeying God in even what we call a little way, they offered a different fire than God had ordained. There was a fire to be going you know, on the altar right, at all times. And apparently what happened was they created, they brought their own big lighter and started their own fire. I don't know how they did it. It doesn't matter. But they didn't do it the way God prescribed. They didn't use the fire that was on the altar. They made their own fire or whatever. Um, Some people said it's because they were drunk and did it. But it says, no, they offered strange fire. And I know why they lean towards that. Or some people lean about the drunkenness because it talks about that later on. But I think they just disobeyed in how they worshiped God with the fire they presented. The point here is this, and this is huge, and this is for all of us. This is one of the principles. It says, along with increased access to God comes increased responsibility. When we have access to God, we're, we're responsible, okay, in a, in a greater level. They were instructed for, uh, for cross-reference purposes in 6.12 for how to do the offering, and they disobeyed that. So what's the lesson for us here, chapter 10. Um, okay, God is approached and worship according to his prescribed method alone. Alone. Remember Uzzah? He, he went to grab the Ark of the Covenant. It was leaning over, it was tipping over, and he went to grab it, and God zapped him on the spot. Now we think, that's not fair. What in the world? What, like, what kind of God is this? Numbers 4, 7, and Exodus 25 says not to do that. He knew better. And by the way, uh, God's not going to zap us or punish us for things we don't know. If we're ignorant, how can he hold that against us? He knows. I mean, Uzzah knew. And that story is in 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 7. You look at Ananias and Sapphira. We talked about that a minute ago. They knew not to lie, and they lied. 
The, the uh, Corinthians, they came to the Lord's Supper and the Love Feast uh, selfish and drunk, and they weren't there to worship. And God said, some of you are falling asleep right, because of your disobedience. We don't have the right to worship God in our own way. And that's the point. A caution I put in my notes here. Just because you aren't or have not been or maybe will never be zapped like Ananias and Sapphira doesn't necessarily mean that all things are okay with you. Just keep on doing what you're doing. You know, the heart of God is the same. The mind of God on these things is the same. But just because he doesn't carry it out the same way doesn't mean that you and him are best buds and all is well. Don't think that way. He's serious about our sins. Very serious. Okay, the uh, third heading we looked at, or we talked about, is uh, uncleanness. And wish me well. Pray for me, please. Because <laughs> this is hard. This is really hard. I want to give an overview of this. I was talking to somebody uh, Friday night about this. And... Yikes. All right, this is uh, found in 11.1 to 16.34. Um, I just want to touch on this real quickly. Um, I'll go over the headings of uncleanness. And uh, First is unclean animals. Okay, chapter 11. Um, Lig Duncan calls it, this diet they were on the South Sinai diet. I kind of like that. Um, but they, they were restricted in what they could you know, do with these animals, and they were unclean animals. And uh, Just keep in mind this. Uh, these are moral and spiritual laws designed to create a distinction between them and the Canaanites. A lot of this stuff you're being taught here in Leviticus is to get you ready. Let's say you're on a camping trip and you're in the wilderness at the bottom of a mountain, and you're going to head out on, on a hike to a promised land. Um, you know, God knows where you're headed. You are headed towards a wicked people, the Canaanites. They, they believe in superstition and magic and all this craziness. And God says, you are to be separate from them. And that's the whole point here. So... And they don't always make sense to us on the surface or maybe even below the surface when you studied a while. It's tough to grasp. But it's not always only a health issue as much as a spiritual issue. Sometimes we can, there's books out there on, you know, what not to eat, you know, because of, of Leviticus chapter 11 to 16. Uh, just be careful on that. Um, when we talk about what is clean versus unclean, uh, the word clean means fit for God's presence. Fit for God's presence. And I summed it up in my own words the best I could because I saw this link here. Seems to be linked to the effects of the fall. And you'll see why I say that. We need to take God at his word. It doesn't always make sense. Um, but think of the second point. We, uh, we have animals in 11. In 12, we have the uncleanness of childbirth. Childbirth is beautiful. It's godly. It's good. But some of the aspects of it is unclean. And we're not going to get into the gory details this morning. Read, uh, read Leviticus, and you'll find it for yourself. Uh, but it's, yeah. And I've seen nine childbirths, and it's not pretty. <laughs> Let's be honest here. It's beautiful because it's God's creation, but okay. Anyway. Enough said. But on childbirth, I just want to say this real quickly. It has something to do with the weakened physical state of the woman 
And it's uh, one commentator, I forget who it was, said, it's a movement toward death, the blood involved. And if things weren't taken care of properly, it could lead to death. It's, it's, it's the effects of the fall, right? Remember in Genesis chapter 3, you'll have pain in childbirth. I think it's involved with that. And so that's all I'll say. The third point under this, uh, this topic of uncleanness is diseases. Uh, it's... And, and, and folks, this gets really gross. Like the more you get into it, it's disgusting. I'm glad I wasn't a priest. I am so thankful I wasn't a priest. They they need to see and touch and do all these weird things. Um, but there's a contamination by the fall, and these diseases are a picture of of the fall. Like I said a second ago, we we cannot enjoy fellowship with God unless we are cleansed. Remember in Psalm 24, it says. You know, uh, only those with clean hands and a pure heart may ascend to the hill of the Lord. Uh, God is is very bent on, if you will, that we worship him properly with a clean heart and clean hands. Okay. The next point is, the, uh, and this gets gross, guys, the unclean discharges. Doesn't, like that word alone just grosses you out, doesn't it? Discharges. Blech. The point is, I'm not going to get into a lot of this because it's not the setting, and I don't, I don't know that much anyway. But I will say this. In Adam, we are all unwhole. We are not right because of Adam's fall. And again, it goes back to the fall. Um, there's something about the discharges. Um, and, and another thing, too, is the, uh, the Canaanites, as I sec- you know, said a minute ago, are, they're involved in magic and you know, we believe God is a true healer, and they believe magic is a healer. And by the way, if you ignored these commands, even on the, on the cleanness involving discharges, it was a command of God. If you didn't obey it, it would lead to your death. You know, I mean, it's gross, but it's something we need to take seriously. In God's eyes, there was an effect of the fall there that he didn't like. He said, this is unclean. Okay. And then um, the next one and the last one under this. I kind of can't wait to get through this part because it's so gross. As uh, the purification of the tabernacle from, from, from uncleanness. But this is really a highlight of the book. Highlight of the book. In fact, I'll be referring to it in communion. The Day of Atonement. Okay, this is the last part under uncleanness is the Day of Atonement. Sins needed to be dealt with. And this is beautiful. This is, uh, you have Aaron. There's two goats that are brought to him. Okay, one of them is killed, sacrificed for the sins of the people. And what a picture of Christ. But the other goat, uh, Aaron lays his hands on this goat. And I have two goats, and I don't know how they stood still so long. I don't know if, I, I believe I read people held them there. Some people held them there. And he would, the priest, uh, well, in this case, Aaron would put his hands on there, pray and confess all the sins of the people who were there watching. That must have taken a long time because there were a lot of sins, right? And they, so they confessed the sins, they prayed, and they let this go. Um, and he was a scapegoat, the Azazel in the Hebrew is the word. And they let this go in the wilderness to picture our sins are released from us as far as the east is from the west. You can't see them, in, they're taken away. One, one commentator said this, and this is fascinating. I've never been to Israel, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I mean, he said it was. And it's fascinating to think about. He said if you go to the wilderness, you can see 
where the old stations were, they would have a little bonfire to say, okay, oh, and by the way, a man brought the goat to the wilderness. They didn't just let the goat free because we have goats and we know they'll come right back. They, they love us so much, especially Noah. So they let the goat go with this man. He'd walk them off. And when they hit a certain distance, they would light a fire and say, all right, he's gone that far. Then it would, they would go another, you know, few hundred yards or whatever and have another fire. And finally, when the, the last fire was lit, the people would rejoice and say, our sins are liquidated, like John Murray says in his book. They're gone. They're, they, you know, they're obliterated. And what a picture. What a picture that is of Christ. Wow. Second uh, Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin took our sin upon him. Psalm 103 says, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 53, in fact, it's an interesting chapter. The Jews won't even read it in synagogue. Um, says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this closes out the first half of the book. Don't panic. I'm not going to like go the same amount of time you know, that I've already gone. So the end of the book, the last half is like we talk about holiness. All right, so we have the sacrifice. We have the priesthood. We know what's unclean. We know what's clean. But how do we live this out practically? And so this is holiness. This is from 17 to the end of the book. And I just want to look, and I'm going to skim over the surface. One is... Um, how was God to prevent the children of Israel from worshiping idols and offering sacrifices to idols? And God is so wise. He's so far beyond us. This is what he did. He made a rule and said, you can't offer sacrifices in your like backyard, per se. All sacrifices must, must, must take place uh, at the tabernacle. So that prevented people from offering their own animals in that backyard, okay, as it were, to idols. Okay, because he knew they were going to the Canaanite land and they were they were they were idol factories there. Okay. So he said, You shall have no other gods before me. In chapter eleven, we use this a lot for communion. Uh, this is a great verse, it talks about our sins and and God gave us blood to make atonement for for our souls. For it's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement or reconciliation. So he says, you must offer sacrifices here at the tabernacle, not in your own backyard. I gave you the blood to offer atonement for your souls. Okay. So we go into some of the practical things about holiness, and they really refer to practical life in 2019 for us. One is sexual behavior, proper sexual behavior. So every manner of fornication, adultery, incest, homosexuality, and even bestiality is prohibited. Child sacrifices was something that was going on back then. I told somebody recently this. I used to work with somebody who said, Randy, you need to get more progressive with your thinking. You are so archaic. You believe in the Bible? Next time somebody says that to you, I got a good one for you. Just say, You're not living a progressive mindset if you believe in homosexuality and bestiality and all this other stuff. You know why? Because it was done in Leviticus. That's not new. That's ancient. That's not progressive. That is old sin being repackaged. 
Next is how to be a good neighbor. And basically, like he says in chapter 19, you be holy as I am holy, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God cares about our relationships and how we represent him is what this chapter is all about. Next is uh, the harsh penalties for worshiping false gods, mediums, spiritists. Um, You are holy to me, for I am the Lord, and I am holy. Uh, Chapter 20. In chapter 21, 22 is instructions for the priests to take their role seriously. He says, I am the Lord, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And I'll tell you what, this really affected me greatly. Cause I'm thought, and so I was reading this, and I was thinking, you know, like as a, ch- like as a church leader, as an elder, this is serious stuff, um, that we take God seriously and realize that we need to do everything as he commands. Now, uh, real uh, quickly, I want to give a really a quick jet tour. There were festivals. And I'll just read them, and then I just want to give a summary statement. Passover the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Offering of first fruits, the Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. You know, God wants his people here to celebrate these events, knowing that he's been sovereign all right, uh, throughout all these events. And just listen to this, this sentence that I put down. It says, God longs for his people to live with great joy for who he is and what he's done for them. And why does he do this? Because he knows we are a forgetful people, right? If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't happen, right? I was talking to somebody recently about that. If you don't put a vacation on your calendar, it's not going to happen. He wants us to put on, well, he wanted them to put on the calendar these events and do them to remember him and to live with great joy. Again, you know, joy is a big part of what God wants from us. Um, in chapter 24, there's an example of a young man who cursed the name of God and they stoned him to death. So it's, it's kind of like, and I thought about it this way, in Acts 10, I mean Leviticus 10, uh, Nadab and Abihu were zapped on the spot for offering strange fire, right? So God did that. And then I thought, well, here in chapter 24, he's asking the people to do it. Say, okay, you saw me do it with Nadab and Abihu. Are you going to do it? Are you going to carry out these commands and physically do this yourself? And they actually did do that. Uh, the Sabbath and the Jubilee years. Uh, one thing I want to say about that is Luke 4 is amazing. I love Luke 4. I learned it in seminary, and I read and reread it, and I had, a, I think, read a paper on it. But Luke 4 is when Jesus comes into the synagogue. He takes the scroll of Isaiah 61. I wish I was there, okay? I just want to read a section of that because there are certain uh, stories in the Bible that I just wish I was there, the Mount of Transfiguration and others. But Luke 4... Uh, he comes in, somebody hands him the scroll of Isaiah 61. No coincidence, it wasn't an accident. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Think of, think of us as sitting in, like in a synagogue in Luke 4, right here, right now, in Chester, New Hampshire. This is the synagogue, and Jesus is coming up to read it. And he reads this, he says, And he has sent me to proclaim... Uh, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, 
to proclaim the favorable, the, the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book. He gave it to the attendant. He sat down, and they were all looking at, you know, at him when he sat there. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I believe this was a jubilee year that he read this in, in Luke 4. Imagine being, like you, like you woke up on another Saturday morning, went to synagogue, and here is this guy. He's called Jesus. He comes in. He says, this day, this, this truth is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Um, so the Jubilee year, and the Jubilee year, really sum up real quickly, is just to, so that we don't put our tent pegs too deep on this earth, knowing that the land and everything went back to their original owners after every 50 years. And a lot more could be said. Um, and then the blessings and cursings, uh, chapter 26, it's really straightforward words. Hey, you do this, and you'll be blessed. You do this, you'll be cursed, you know, and there's a whole chapter of that. And then the last chapter is to keep your promises. It's, um, it's uh, let your yea be yea, your no, no. It, it affects how we talk to one another, our words. We need to you know, speak the truth, like Ephesians 4 says, and encourage. So that's the book of Leviticus. I want to just read some closing remarks. And I use the outline of the sermon to use the outline uh, use that as the outline of the conclusion. One is sacrifice is the first thing. Remember this. Christ, in Hebrews 10, is the perfect sacrifice once for all for sin. Uh, priesthood. In Hebrews it says, Christ is a perfect high priest separate from sinners. We can go to him. We have intercession through him. Uh, uncleanness. The blood of Christ is the only thing we can clean. That, that can clean us from our sin, disease, and make us acceptable to him. It talks about that in Hebrews chapter 10. We need the clean, really our sins to be cleaned, and the blood of Christ is the only thing that can do that. And, and last is a practical holiness. 1 Peter 1.14 says this, Like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's the goal of the book of, of Leviticus. A quick exhortation to believers and then unbelievers. Okay, to the believers, like the children of Israel, we are sojourners, as Peter said in, in 1 Peter. And God has chosen this ragtag group of people in the wilderness to represent him before a watching world. How are you doing at representing the one who called you from darkness into light? When people think of your name, what do they think about? We talked about this briefly in Sunday school this morning. When your name is mentioned, what comes to mind? Do they see you as one who is representing Christ? That is what the book really is all about um, when you boil it all down. For the unbelievers, for those who have yet, you know, not yet trusted in Christ, Moses said when they were in the wilderness, to look at a bronze serpent and you'll be healed from your snake bites. What are you talking about? Sometimes we, 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 we read these passages in the Bible. We think, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, it's boring. Think if you were in the wilderness and you got a snake bite and Moses said, okay, look at that bronze serpent, you'll be healed. You'd look at Moses and say, what, are you crazy? Looking at a bronze serpent is going to heal me? And then maybe they looked around and said, Oh, well, these, these other people are being healed. Right, maybe I'll do it. But the point is, is 
In John, it says, just like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness for healing, look at Christ. He is a New Testament picture of that bronze serpent, and you can be healed from all your sins if you look at Christ. Do not forget that. Healing is found in Christ alone. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the depth of it. There's so much here. Lord, thank you for the privilege of presenting it, Lord, this morning. May we glean something from it by your Holy Spirit. May we have a greater reverence for who you are and your perfections and how you accomplished all your great desire through your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect payment of our sin, the serpent on the cross, Um, uh, like the serpent in the wilderness, we can look upon Christ on the cross and know that our sins have been fully dealt with, not just paid for like the first goat, but liquidated like the second goat, totally done away with. Thank you for that healing that we can have in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. We give you thanks in Christ's name.